30th-century toxic jungle, a bathhouse for tired gods, a red-haired fish girl, and a furry woodland spirit. What do these things have in common? They all spring from the mind of one of the greatest living animators, Hayao Miyazaki. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Joining me today to talk about Miyazaki and anime is Susan Napier, a professor of Japanese studies at Tufts and an anime expert. Her latest book is Miyazaki World, A Life in Art. Susan, thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. What distinguishes anime, first of all, as a specific genre of animation, versus, say, something old and hand-drawn like the old Disney films? Anime is, we usually use anime to, to mean Japanese animation. And what does that mean if you kind of break it down? First of all, it's it's animation, just as, as Disney is, or Warner Brothers, or, or Pixar. Um, but uh, in the case of Japanese animation, there are some important differences related to basically technique, uh, style, and themes. So uh, one of the things that people notice if they're used to something like Disney, which is very flowing and kind of the sort of a three-dimensional quality to the, the characters, the, the human and animal characters, is that anime can seem uh, more jumpy, uh, has a, a less um, complex uh, body and facial types, and has a different kind of dynamic to it. Uh, not necessarily worse, but just different. And people notice it very, you pick up on it even unconsciously. And one of the key reasons behind that is that in traditional animation, particularly such as uh, someone, uh, a studio like Disney, which, you know, has a very big budget, you are using uh, 24 frames a second when you animate, which is a lot of frames, and that means that movement uh, can go can come across very naturally, and as I say, very smoothly. In Japan, because they just didn't have that uh, kind of budget when they were starting out in the uh, late 50s and early 60s, they had roughly half that many frames per second, like 12 or sometimes 8. And so uh, you don't have uh, the kind of river-like quality of, of flow. You have movement that, that's you know much, much quicker and kind of sharper, almost jerkier. And uh, many people, that, that's sort of one of the key aspects of anime style. In some cases, you don't even uh, have 12. Uh, you, can, you can kind of change frames within that and to make a, a very, as I say, a really dynamic quality to it. Um, that's sort of the basic technique right there. Uh, also, Disney, for example, would use rotoscoping. It would um, actually uh, uh, build its uh, characters around real, real-life models. Whereas in uh, Japanese animation, it's all coming from the head. Uh, so you, uh, which I think it can be very liberating because you'll often have very, very out there characters, all kinds of fascinating designs, a lot of metamorphosis. It's a, in a way a kind of freer sort of animation. Um, and say that sort of goes into style, uh, which is um, they are of course constrained because they they can't be as as dense as American animation, so that they will do things kind of shortcuts to uh, to make uh, emotions more obvious. Uh, if you can't have really complex expressions, what do you do? Well, for example, the eyes. You know, the eyes are considered the window of the soul, and many many people 
have noticed how Japanese anime characters often have huge eyes, and it's because this way you can, if you're an animator, you can you know, have lots of expression, the welling of tears, the uh, kind of just a glow in the eye, a radiance uh, that will show a character's uh, feelings. Uh, without having to use a lot of sophisticated animation. Uh, another thing that, that's a visual aspect of animation that's really very delightful to people, uh, sorry, of anime that's very delightful to people, is that uh, you have really often just wonderful, uh, very carefully drawn settings. And uh, this is one of the great appeals of, of anime to people that you have... Um, not so much characters, but characters in a background, characters in a background that is beautifully realized. And of course, if I can put in a plug for my my favorite animator Miyazaki, mm-hmm. uh, his backgrounds are just exceptional, and they are hand drawn. By the way, he uh, really uh, even now uh, still hand draws most of his material, and he's a very good artist. And uh, the backgrounds he has, he has castles, he has mountains, he has the sea, and they're just sumptuously realized. They're they're kind of uh, immersive worlds that you can kind of. Just just go into because uh, he does such detail and such beautiful colors and, and just richness of design. And is that is that richness of design what makes Miyazaki different from other animators, even other uh, people, say, in Japan doing anime? Wow, uh, that's an interesting question. I would say uh, generally anime does have really good designs. You have a very strong uh, pictorial tradition in Japanese culture, you know, from at least the uh, 8th century on. Uh, so they, uh, the people who are doing animation in Japan tend to be very good artists, and they do enjoy creating very distinctive backgrounds, which often have a kind of emotional resonance that I think uh, is less is really quite lacking in a lot of American animation. Uh, but having said that, yeah, I, I think in, in Miyazaki's case, I said he he does he still really throughout most of his career has done hand drawing and just thousands, I mean thousands, tens of thousands of, of pictures of, of certain cells that he's storyboards that he's created, and he he draws very very rapidly. That was one reason why he got his first job back in the early sixties as a young animator. But he also draws with great authority and skill, and really is able to. Uh, I think he has an enormous uh, visual uh, imagination and also a lot of um, visual erudition. I mean, he knows his stuff. He knows Goya. He knows, um, oh gosh, he's uh, got a portrait, uh, a picture on his wall from the Tate Gallery in London by the the painter Millet of Ophelia um, in um, lying backwards as she's kind of drowning herself in Hamlet. And he actually uses that, uh, used that um, uh, picture as an inspiration for one of his most recent films, Ponyo. Uh, so he's not just kind of drawing it just from his head. He also has this, this enormous uh, background, just, just having grown up in, in Japan and being able to, to get access to a lot of, of good art, both, both Japanese and Western. Something I've always been interested in is this idea of uh, of a pillow shot in Japanese cinema. Oh, yeah. Which is this sort of shot. It's almost like a pause between two scenes, a lot, oftentimes, say, a, a shot of scenery. Um, mm-hmm. Miyazaki uses them a lot. Where does this come from, and why do animators use that? Yeah, uh, the pillow shot is is a kind of wonderful idea, and it is often um, kind of surprising to Western audiences because they want narratives to move quickly. They want every scene to kind of continue the narrative to make a point, and the pillow shot is often a moment of reflection uh, when the camera moves away from the main characters into something quite different, and it's actually not out of anime. It comes of uh, the most famous practitioner, 
is a Japanese director, uh, but he's a live action film director named Yasujiro Ozu. And Ozu uh, did beautiful family domestic dramas, uh, often very, very uh, plaintive, uh, melancholy, um, but also very beautiful. But you'd have a scene like um, a, a father coming home from his daughter's wedding, and he's a widower. He's coming home to an empty house. And we see the camera follows him. He sits down in a chair and uh, he starts peeling an apple. And then he looks up and he looks at a vase uh, in the other room. And we see the vase. And the vase has no particular symbolic meaning. It's not some, you know, symbol vase. It's just a vase. And, you know, so you have this kind of moment of sort of of deep intensity followed by another different kind of moment that allows you a little bit of a rest as a viewer uh, to kind of take in uh, a different kind of aspect of the world, that there is a larger world around you. And... um, that we we sometimes forget about when we're just so focused on plot or or character action. I also think it it off it works very well in Miyazaki movies because a lot of the times the movies are the main characters are children and it sort of mm-hmm. gives you this sense of of noticing these little things that kids tend to notice. Absolutely. Uh, a cup, I have a couple of fa- favorite scenes. One is in uh, Miyazaki's Totoro, when uh, the youngest, uh, it's about two little sisters who are uh, moved to the country because their, their mother is sick. And the youngest, so the younger sister, Mei, is out on a spring day just kind of hanging out. Her father is a professor and he's grading papers in, the, um, in, the, in his study. And she just kind of lies there for a while looking at stuff. And we see, again, the camera cuts away to an insect. Uh, I think it's a snail or something going up uh, a, a plant and just very slowly, some kind of flower. And it's very interesting. According to one um, uh, Japanese critic I read, this is actually a, a kind of an homage to, I think, is it Robert Burns? Um, or no, Robert Browning, sorry. Uh, God's in his heaven, all's right in the world. And something, <laughs> the snail is on the thorn. The idea of a beautiful morning with an insect crawling up a plant. And it's just, again, this, uh, this sort of larger world in which, you know, insect and natural beauty and just a kind of poetic, lyrical quality sort of comes in, uh, which takes us a little bit away from the little girl, but actually, I think, enhances our, our overall appreciation of her and, and her situation. Do people find it surprising when they hear that there is a there is Western influence on on something as Japanese as a Miyazaki film? <laughs> yes, they do. It's, I have to say that's been one of the, my big sort of discoveries when I was writing the book was how important Western influence was. And this is not at all to say that, that Miyazaki slavishly comp, uh, uh, copies Western. <laughs> movies or books or anything like that, but it is to suggest what extraordinary genius he is because he does take from so many different sources, so many different inspirations, and then through his own genius, and I really do think we were talking about genius, he he creates something completely different, uh, absolutely um, original, idiosyncratic. I mean, there's so many examples, but I'll just say uh, I found I was fortunate. I found a book that he had produced, um, must have been about ten, maybe ten years ago now, uh, for a children's book publisher in Japan, in which he talked about his 50 favorite uh, children's uh, works, and of that 50. 40 at least were non-Japanese. And of that 40, I think almost 30 were English children's literature. 
And I don't think he's alone. I think a lot of, of Japanese animators are very aware of Western literature, Western culture. I mean, they grew up with it in a way that, that in America, we don't have that immersion into another culture. But for many uh, Japanese of Miyazaki's generation, they actually grew up under the American occupation. Uh, and also, it was just you know, at that point, the West was considered a very important civilization to get to know, to emulate, to, to understand. And so they would have a very strong uh, background in uh, Western culture, not just um, uh, books, but also art, as I mentioned, and music, too. Uh, the, one of Miyazaki's his main musical collaborator, a man named Joe Hisaishi, uh, consistently has used uh, Western themes, uh, musical themes, in his work to create, again, very uh, beautiful, very idiosyncratic works that combine both Japanese and, and Western music. I, I, I lived in Japan for a couple of years, and, and one thing oh. I found very interesting was that Japan is very good at taking um, things from other cultures and making them distinctly Japanese. Yes. We were, it's funny. We were, I was just talking about that with someone today. Um, it's, in the old days, we used to call it cultural borrowing, <laughs> but that slightly, that sounds a bit pejorative. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very complicated, but they have been really been uh, a country that in many ways has been quite isolated. Uh, they are an island country uh, off, uh, you know, isolated from the, the Asian continent. Um, in some ways they, they uh, resemble England from that point of view. The England is much closer to the European continent than uh, Japan is, is close to China, for example. So they've had a more awareness of uh, when, when something non-Japanese comes in, they're, they're much more aware of it. And it has been going on since at least the 7th and 8th centuries when uh, they started really trading with China and be, really received an enormous amount of, of the sort of the best of Chinese culture, religion, uh, philosophy, education, uh, art, all these things, and that they then took in uh, and then would kind of reprocess and process uh, to create something that was remarkably <laughs> idiosyncratically Japanese. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's certainly been done with the West, too. Um, and I think uh, I do see this constantly with Miyazaki um, in so many of his works. So one of the things about um, Miyazaki is that to, to some people, he's almost indistinguishable from the, the studio that he helped found, which is mm. Studio Ghibli. Um, he, he, he founded that, he co-founded that with a man named Isao Takahara. Hata, excuse me, um, who actually recently died. What was his relationship with Takahata like? (laughs) He had a complicated relationship (laughs) with Takahata. Uh, It's very interesting. I mean, many people think, and I wouldn't totally disagree, that without Takahata, Miyazaki would not have become what he he did. Uh, Partly politically, uh, Takahata was somewhat older than Miyazaki. I argue that over the years, Miyazaki often had older brother figures, including his his own genuine older brother, but these older brother figures in his um, art and studio work that kind of helped him along or or gave him pointers or kind of put him in, in some very important directions. But Takahata was absolutely a major, major influence on Miyazaki. Um, he was uh, not just artistic, 
but also very much politically, because Miyazaki is actually quite left-wing. And uh, he and Takahata, in fact, were uh, part of a union at their, the studio where they first worked together, Toei Studio. And I think that even though we don't, it's not a kind of knee-jerk Marxism in any way, but, but both Takahata and Miyazaki tend to create movies that uh, kind of emphasize uh, in a very positive way the uh, joys of the collective, of people working together, of kind of creating things from the, from the bottom up, not from the top down. Uh, and uh, definitely a, a kind of sens- a sensibility that can be fairly rebellious and, and even subversive. And Princess Mononoke, for example, he, he really subverts a lot of Japanese tradition from the myth of the samurai and the emperor, uh, all the way, in just all the way down to, um, uh, even the idea of Jap- Japan is always nature loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Takahata seems like a, uh, very, uh, early on, I think they, he was, probably kind of Miyazaki's guide through a lot of, of both political and artistic aspects of, of life at, at the first studio they worked in. Uh, but he himself, he's, he's not actually an animator himself. He's a director uh, and not, not an artist, unlike Miyazaki. Uh, and although he did direct many films and the two of them together founded Studio Ghibli, over time, the fact that, that Takahata tended to be very slow and painstaking in his work uh, very clearly got to, to Miyazaki. <laughs> and um, he, at one point, uh, calls him, just in an interview, the descendant of a giant sloth. <laughs> and that is a little mean to, to, your, to say about your, your, your best directing partner. Um, but I think, I think there were... Uh, there was certainly some competitiveness. It's interesting. Miyazaki always says, "Well, I'm not really cultivated." I think, "Oh, that's nonsense." I mean, <laughs> you, you know, he obviously reads and listens to right. you know music and looks at art. But uh, Takahata was the what we call in Japanese the inteddy, the intellectual, and he had gone to um, uh, Tokyo University, which is the you know greatest mm-hmm. university in Japan. It's sort of Harvard and Berkeley and Yale all rolled into one. And he'd studied French literature, which is what Inteddy intellectuals did in the 1950s. And so he had this kind of glamour, this uh, sort of uh, a little bit otherworldly intellectual quality. Uh, it's interesting, another person exactly the same year at Tokyo University who studied French literature was uh, Kenzaburo Oe, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature and would have been a classmate of, of Takahata's. So I think there's a little bit in Miyazaki's sense of a little bit being the kind of the scrappy younger brother coming up against this, this rather glamorous. It's a brilliant uh, older brother figure. And uh, My Neighbor Totoro, which you mentioned earlier, and Takahata's uh, Grave of the Fireflies debuted as a double feature. Um, and for those who haven't seen both, Totoro is a, is a very light, sort of whimsical uh, movie about children and, and, and these sort of imaginary creatures, possibly imaginary. Um, and Grave of the Fireflies is this very heavy um, movie about wartime Japan. Um, how was this double billing received by audiences? And was, what did releasing these two movies together, was this a statement by Ghibli? Did this do something for the profile of Ghibli as a studio? Wow. Well, putting together on a double bill, My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of Fireflies is 
perhaps not the best decision that Ridley <laughs> ever made. Uh, they are, as you said, such different films in terms of emotional effect. I mean, you, you walk out of Grave of Fireflies. I mean, even the title, Grave of Fireflies, gives it away. This is not going to be about a film about people living happily ever after. By the way, that's another thing that, that often people uh, notice about Japanese anime, that uh, often sometimes the good guys die. Uh, sometimes uh, people don't uh, live happily ever after. And um, that, I think that's a very important, actually an interesting part of, of an anime's appeal, that in a strange way it's more emotionally realistic. Um, but in Grave of Fireflies, it's a painfully realistic movie of two children who are trying to survive in war-torn Japan. I mean, literally torn by war. They're, they're the victims of the terrible fire bombings of the last year of the war. They're trying to live by themselves in a little uh, kind of hide out near the river and uh, inevitably uh, the boys, I think 14 or 15, his little sister is five. He really can't cope. He can't take care of her. Uh, he can't protect her and he can't even protect himself. And so it, the movie ends just strikingly sadly. And, uh, and then in contrast, you have, as you said, this much more lighthearted, whimsical film of, of Totoro, in which you have again, two uh, a sibling pair, these two sisters, um, but they and they have their own traumatic issues because they're dealing with um, this sick mother. But they are able to find solace and um, and uh, a certain amount of joy through their friendship with a perhaps imaginary creature <laughs> uh, named Totoro, who's very furry and large and uh, clearly benign. We're, we're, we're presented, made, we're made sure that you realize he's benign, but um, he really is uh, uh, someone who helps out. And so you don't have a dark ending. You may have little bits of darkness there, but not nearly the kind of overall uh, sadness that is instilled in Grave of Fireflies. So I know I'm not really sure why they chose to put those two together. Uh, as uh, they and they didn't, it didn't end up being very successful commercially. And I think that was partly because uh, they were such uh, different different emotionally toned movies that people really would be scratching their heads about what, what kind of takeaway, as we say now, they would be getting from these, these films. And um, for a while, in fact, Ghibli was in deep trouble. It had had one um, reasonable, um, no, just before Ghibli, they had uh, had one major hit, this movie, uh, Nashka, The Valley of Wind, which had allowed them to, to fund the studio. But then, um, and they really didn't uh, do that well uh, with subsequent ones for quite a while. It was only when really uh, you had video and VHS uh, that Totoro really started coming uh, coming into its own, and I might also add uh, the willingness the uh, to market cuddly uh, Totoro <laughs> dolls because for a long time Ghibli was against that they didn't want to go that kind of commercialized route, but you know somebody persuaded them and said, oh look, you know Totoro is so cute, you know let's make a doll about him, and uh, <laughs> that uh, it worked. I mean they're incredibly popular. I have to admit I, I own five Totoros myself, and probably would own more if I lived in Japan. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's there are sort of funny little things that happen that make something iconic. And uh, clearly, Totoro took a while to to build, uh, and then it's now considered. Uh, I read a book in Japanese with the really uh, kind of cute, uh, but often a little bit surprising title. The book is called "For Those Who Have Seen Totoro a Hundred Times and Still Haven't Gotten Sick of It." <laughs> and really, there are clearly people out there who have seen it a hundred times. 
going back to this idea of of marketing um, and mm. Ghibli's reluctance to potentially market um, something like Totoro, Spirited Away was huge in the U.S. Um, and uh, you know whether it's the the breakthrough or not, it won an Academy Award. Um, one of the one of the arguments over it was that the marketing was to was. Uh, the reason why it was so successful, and obviously Miyazaki does not believe that. Um, what do you think it is about Spirited Away that set it apart and made it much bigger in the U.S. than some of the other films? Wow. I think Spirited Away uh, did benefit from some very good marketing, uh, although I would absolutely say the film, and I'll get back to it in a minute, it is a brilliant masterpiece of a film. But the fact is that uh, they had had a, their first sort of big Ghibli film before they had been Princess Mononoke, uh, which uh, had, you know, they, they kind of had an agreement with Disney, it had appeared in some um, number of American theaters, but didn't really catch on. And so uh, with this next one, uh, this um, the former, I believe, head of Pixar, John Lasseter, right. uh, came or stepped in to help. And Lasseter went around and really kind of pushed um, uh, Disney to sort of market this and, and make a big deal out of it. And Lasseter also chose some really excellent um, uh, voice actors, you know, quite famous. Who I, I have to say, dubbing is a big issue when we look at animation, <laughs> uh, anime. And But I really do think Spirit Away has, in many ways, quite a good dub. The actors are very good. Mm-hmm. And um, may also, you know, sometimes it's, I think also there's the times are right. Uh, by the 21st century, about I think it came out in America in 2002. I think we had more and more shifted towards an, an interest in fantasy cinema, an appreciation of it that hadn't been around for a long time. When I first started working on fantasy, it was considered kind of a cute, trivial, sub, escapist subject. But then in the 1990s, you you have uh, these uh, sort of the mega uh, hits of the uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, the, the books becoming a movie, uh, those were three movies, and becoming highly admired and being given a, an Academy Award. You also have uh, the Harry Potter series, both in books and in, in cinema, becoming sort of major cultural phenomena. And I, I sometimes think that's partly why Spirit Away the Time was right for that kind of, of very, very imaginative fantasy. I mean, Spirit Away, as I said about Miyazaki's work, but even more extremely, is an immersive other world. I mean, it's about a, a bathhouse for tired gods who, you know, want to you know, get away from it all, <laughs> and a little girl who ends up kind of working there to help free her parents from a terrible spell. But but that, that just doesn't even begin to sum up the movie, because it's so... It's sort of dreamlike. It's it's subversive. It's uh, absolutely beautiful, and uh, and it has romance and uh, adventure, and but also just you never know where it's going to go. And I think that freshness was also something that appealed to people. That it really was not your kind of cliched, trite kind of fairy tale type thing. It it took the fairy tale tropes of a of a curse or a spell or a, and a young person having to to deal with things. And remember, it's a young girl. One of the things that's so great about Miyazaki and, and a number of other Japanese animators is the very strong interest in, in autonomous young females as, as having kind of agency of their own. And then putting it into this, this strikingly uh, unusual, indeed unique uh, world that, that, again, only animation and specifically, I think, Miyazaki's particular uh, quality of animation could do. And... You mentioned earlier uh, a movie called Naushika, um in the mm. Valley of the Wind. That was actually 
if I'm remembering correctly, released at some point in the U.S., but badly. Mm-hmm. And did mm-hmm. this lead to some sort of, of falling out um, between uh, Miyazaki and U.S. markets? I feel like they re-edited it in a way that made it yeah. almost a completely different film. Yeah, uh, this is one of the sort of the great tragedies, perhaps, of, of anime, although in the long run, you know, things uh, did work out. But yeah, Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind is an extraordinary movie. Again, I, I keep saying this. It is it was made in 1982, I think, in Japan. or I think the movie came out in 84. It was based on a manga by Miyazaki. But it has a very, very interesting, impressive, smart uh, scientific, uh, skilled uh, female protagonist. <laughs> and this is in the 1980s when you know, Japan, not just Japan, but America would have had nobody like this. I mean, now we have Katniss Everdeen and, and Wonder Woman, but really this was quite unique. And so it was very unfortunate that it didn't uh, get the kind of, of treatment it really should have had in, in America. And the uh, mark of uh, people have said, I haven't actually seen it, that it was quite butchered, that they, that they just changed so much. And this, by the way, is part of a tradition in um, American kind of, uh, interrelationships or relationships with uh, Japanese animation is that often American studios would take uh, anime and uh, just sort of casually cut and then <laughs> put a, a completely new sequence in or or just take from something else and, and actually make create one sort of series out of two different series and just show it uh, because they felt they could get away with it. It was all strange and, you know, <laughs> Japanese or whatever. And uh, so this was very, very embittering to Miyazaki to have his you know, his baby, his, uh, his one of his great creations. As I said, it wasn't just a movie. It was also a manga that ultimately became a thousand-page long manga. It's, it's really a, a manga masterpiece. Uh, so that was, was very upsetting to, to um, Miyazaki. And I think it made them all very gun-shy about distribution in, in America, in the West. And they, there's another great story which I believe is true, uh, that uh, when Princess Mononoke was uh, create, was brought to the States, um, the um, I think it was Miramax, uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein, who was the um, uh, sort of associate with bringing it in and uh, marketing it and distributing it. And uh, there was talk uh, at Miramax about, isn't this uh, a bit long? Because it is a rather long film. It's two hours and 20 minutes, and that's unusual for an animated film, and people don't necessarily want to, to watch for that long. And uh, so they they said, well, can't we cut it? And the story is that uh, the very irrepressible uh, and assertive producer of Ghibli, Toshio Suzuki, sent uh, Weinstein a uh, samurai sword with the message, no cuts. <laughs> And apparently they got the message, so they didn't, they didn't cut it. <laughs> so is Miyazaki as recognized internationally as he should be? Oh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Uh, he is remarkably well recognized uh, internationally. I mean, I was in Paris. Oh, it must have been, goodness, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I just happened to notice on a, on a street lamp a poster for an exhibition of Miyazaki and another a great um, French designer or, or um, really comic artist, um, a graphic novel artist named Mobius, or his nickname is Mobius. And they were having a big exhibition of Mobius and Miyazaki at the Musée de la Monnaie 
which is no slouchy little museum, you know, by the side of the, the road kind of thing. It's a huge, fancy palace of a museum. And it was a beautiful exhibition. And that was, as I said, at least 15 years ago, maybe even more. So uh, already at that time, I mean, generally, anime actually has had a very good um, uh, influence, uh, very strong influence in uh, European countries, Spain, France, um, actually, Russia too. Uh, there's, it's very popular there, and Miyazaki in particular is seen very much in, in very uh, kind of godlike terms. I mean, there are at least a couple of books in French on Miyazaki. Um, it's also in the rest of the world outside of Europe. He's extremely popular in China. Again, this is about ten years ago. I gave a, a talk in Beijing on Miyazaki. I mean, this is this is a man who is. Uh, highly uh, recognized, but to get back to your question, is he recognized as much as he should be? That's that's tricky. Um, I think one thing that uh, I I do appreciate so much about Miyazaki and about anime in general is something I said earlier, which is that it's not always upbeat. It's not always the happy every ever after uh, kind of uh, movie making that we have in Hollywood. And that has its good points and its bad points. The good point is that it's emotionally challenging and involving in a very different way. And I think it speaks to young people who are uh, dealing with a complex world uh, that is often far more ambiguous than a, than a happily ever after uh, ending can kind of uh, respond to. But at the same time, it can make the average American moviegoer uneasy. Uh, again, to Miyazaki in particular, doesn't really like giving obvious villains and obvious heroes. He likes complex individuals who have good points and bad points, and that again is a pleasure if you if you're enjoying that kind of subtle, nuanced kind of presentation of, of humanity. But if you want something more, you know, no offense to the Marvel universe, but more like that <laughs> in terms of good versus really really bad, uh, that's not what Miyazaki's giving us. And so I'm not sure if he'll ever be as, as appreciated as I think he should be. Uh, but then, you know, that's true of a lot of really great, uh, great and talented artists. Do you have a favorite uh, Miyazaki movie? Can you pick one? really hard. Um, it's just under a Harvard student group who are in the arts. There's a movie called Porco Rosso. Are you familiar with that mm-hmm, one? Mm-hmm. It's, it's really different. It's a <laughs> hybrid movie. It was originally made, supposed to be made for um, uh, JL, Japan Airlines, and it was uh, going to be a 40-minute movie uh, aimed at businessmen who, as Miyazaki memorably put it, whose brains had turned to tofu on a long international <laughs> flight. So it's originally kind of very hijink, very picaresque. But but over time, it went from a forty-minute movie uh, about a um, uh, a World War One aviator who flies around uh, the Adriatic and happens to have the face of a pig, hence the name Porco Rosso, uh, with all kinds of picaresque hijinks adventures as he flies around his little seaplane. It's all very cute and fun. Uh, to a really interesting um, kind of meditation on what it is to be a middle-aged male. <laughs> and because we, we we begin to realize that, you know, why does this guy, he used to have a human face, why does he have the face of a pig? And, and when I first saw this very popular animated series, or, or very well-regarded anime series in, animation series in America, BoJack Horseman. Oh, yeah. I couldn't help thinking, I wonder if they ever saw Porco Rosso, because Bojack Horseman has a, <laughs> a middle-aged the, uh, the torso, of course. <laughs> a exactly. middle-aged animal man, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, with a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> complex feelings. And so it's so interesting, because the movie is great fun. The, the flight scenes, they have a lot of dog fights between seaplanes are just 
beautifully done. You have two very interesting female characters, an older woman who's uh, a chanteuse. She runs her own nightclub and hotel, and she's very sophisticated, yet has, you know, a, 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 a dark past. And then a younger, very feisty young woman who's a really good mechanic who helps fix planes. And... Um, and so you have this very interesting sort of uh, romance plus friendship uh, in this, which is a great pleasure. And yet you also have this sort of yearning melancholy. Uh, and one of the, the central theme songs of the movie is actually a song from the Paris Commune of, I think, I think it's 1878, which was a kind of uh, collective um, rebellion in Paris, uh, where people were trying to kind of put in Marxist principles and, and have a sort of egalitarian, uh, relatively unsexist society uh, in Paris against the government. And of course, it was, you know, it was destroyed in two months and people were massacred put in jail and executed. Uh, but there's a song from it, uh, Les Tons de, de uh, Cerise, the uh, time of the cherries. And the very, almost the first thing you hear in the movie is this song, the time of the cherries sort of coming out of a radio that the Porco Rosso, this, this aviator with the face of a pig is listening to as he sits on a beach in the Adriatic in 1929. And it's this, this song about uh, love and about uh, kind of dreams and, and ideals that are, you know, inevitably crushed like the falling cherry blossoms. And just to go back to this point about what sort of we talked about at the beginning of, of both Japanese and Western tropes coming in. Uh, of course, one of the main big tropes of, of evanescence in Japanese culture is the cherry blossoms. And here Miyazaki finds a, a French song about the cherry blossoms uh, going down and evoking again this, this lyrical uh, sadness that is, is very much part of Japanese culture. But it's found in a movie that's set in Europe in 1929 about uh, a, an aviator. All right. Well, the book is Miyazaki World. Susan, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.